0: From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting with a discussion about parking, and this because the city of Vancouver is looking to eliminate minimum parking requirements in new buildings in certain parts of the city. Joining me to talk about this is Michael Geller, real estate consultant and president of the Geller Group. Michael, thank you so much for coming back on the show.
1: it's my pleasure.
0: It is certainly an issue that has an impact on a lot of people, whether you have a vehicle or not. How much of a shift is this that the city is looking at removing the minimum parking requirements in some pretty dense neighbourhoods, looking at the West End, Robson North area, and the Broadway plan?
1: Well, I think it is a major shift, but it's following a trend that's been taking place over the last 20 years. I used to give talks on how to reduce the cost of housing. and Number one on my list was often reduce minimum parking requirements because as is reported in uh, the staff report, and as was discussed yesterday when uh, David Eby and Minister Ravon made announcements, parking costs are becoming increasingly expensive, especially when you have to put the spaces underground. And at the same time, People's habits are changing. I still drive a car, but many of my daughter's friends don't even have a driver's license. And that, to me, is an indication that it perhaps is appropriate to rethink the minimum parking requirements of yesteryear.
0: You mentioned the, the additional or the additional costs. Would it have an impact, do you think, then, if there was a building that went up that didn't have to meet the minimum parking requirements? Would that bring the price down?
1: A colleague of mine, is, I've been looking at the potential of building a new rental building for him under the Broadway plan, and that's one of the areas where this bylaw might be put in place. And for him to meet the city's current minimum requirement, even for a rental building, would need five levels of underground parking on a very small site just off Broadway. If, in fact, it was left entirely up to him to determine how many spaces he might need, he would probably end up with perhaps two levels of parking, saving millions of dollars. And while some might say, well, does that cost reduction translate into lower rents? I would say yes, it definitely does.
0: Right. How would you know, though, or how do you make sure that that translates to lower rents, that that does actually get passed on to the tenants?
1: By ensuring enough new apartments are being built. You're quite correct. If there's no competition and people can charge whatever they want, then those cost savings don't get translated. But when there's enough supply, then I think you realistically do see the rents coming down. The fact is, I think most of us are shocked at the price of rental housing, new rental one-bedroom apartments, $3,000 and more. That, that is a very disturbing number for, for many of us.
0: No, it's a a huge number, especially when you look at salaries and how much people are spending on rent, definitely. Um, Michael, you mentioned that... that that things are changing or attitudes are changing and uh, I would agree I, I, I know people in their, their 20s and 30s the uh, same, our, the focus on getting that driver's license or, or driving isn't doesn't really seem to be there as much. We've also seen uh, the announcement, uh, so many housing announcements lately, but the one yesterday dealing with really the push to build more housing at transit hubs and th- that seems to also go with that theme is that if you are really focusing and wanting to live next to a transit hub, the reason one of the reasons is likely because you don't drive.
1: Yes. There's two things that I think are impacting the decision to reduce parking. One is the general improvements. And I say that word cautiously, but general improvements in the public transit in Metro. We have a long way to go. But the other thing is the availability of car share. And uh, I suspect many of the people listening to us right now belong to various car share programs co-op programs and the fact that you can have access to a car when you need it but you don't have one full-time which you have to park is a significant consideration and to my mind that is one of the reasons why it does make sense to allow some significant reductions in parking but that said i am not oblivious to the reality that if we go too far And too many people are trying to park on the streets that we're now creating another problem. And that's what many people are thinking right now as they listen to us.
0: Well, and that was my next question, because even though attitudes are changing and maybe people are choosing not to own vehicles for whatever reason, there are still a lot of vehicle owners and people that need those vehicles to get to places that maybe aren't well serviced by transit. There are people that maybe don't have off street parking and in some of the dense neighborhoods, the ones specifically outlined in this proposal, it can be a challenge. You almost kind of feel like you've won the lottery if you get a spot on the street. And it seems like this would make that worse.
1: It will make it worse. The other thing, though, which we'll start to see, I suspect, is more and more uh, permit parking on streets, resin only and so forth. And the city's starting to charge much more to use street parking. I remember when I ran for city council in 2008, I actually said to people, I'm thinking of uh, charging, proposing that we charge people to park on streets. And they said, well, that'll ensure that you don't get elected. And in fact, I didn't get elected. But I still think we should be reviewing how much we charge people, because people who own apartment buildings, Jill, tell me they often have empty spaces in their garage because people would rather park on the street or buy a permit that costs them $35 a year when, in fact, it costs $50 or $75 or more to park in the underground parking.
0: Right. And I think there's there are a number of reasons for that as well whether it's convenience. So oftentimes I think people feel safer parking on the street. You take I mean you take the risk anywhere you're parking that your car is going to be broken into, but if you're a shift worker or uh, something going into a dark garage in the middle of the night can be a bit daunting whereas popping out onto the street and getting into your vehicle can actually feel safer.
1: Yeah, and I agree. And also just trying to squeeze into some of these quote, small parking spaces. I mean, I have a car that keeps beeping whenever I'm about to hit a column and it's invariably beeping all the time as I try to park. So I appreciate that point. <laughs>
0: um, when you when you mentioned that the making more uh, charging more for street parking and that 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 could be part of this shift as well, uh, uh, permitting. But remember, it wasn't that long ago with the previous council, and, and I think this was more because the proposal they put forward was incredibly flawed. But when they were talking about a citywide parking program, there was a huge backlash.
1: Yes. And I think I may have been one of the people who was questioning it because of precisely what you say. The details were not as well thought out as perhaps they should be. But as we reduce parking, and I think it's important to note, Vancouver has also recently put in place new zoning regulations throughout all single-family neighborhoods, which will allow up to six homes on one lot, depending on the size. And I was shocked, literally, that their their city is not requiring any parking spaces. It'll be left up to the builder. Now, I do believe if someone's building a condominium, which might sell for one and a half, two million dollars, they'll want to provide that purchaser with a reserved off-street spot. But the city zoning policy does not require any parking in all of these single-family neighbourhoods. And I do anticipate that could well create some problems, not for the first few projects, but uh, for as, as we progress, because the lit- people will soon be walking blocks to, to find a place to, to, to park. So it is a balancing act, but in principle, I think the city is correct in saying in, in, along the Broadway corridor and in the West End and areas that are reasonably well served by transit, that there should not be minimum requirements. And indeed, what I used to always say is the minimum parking requirements should become maximum requirements, and that's what appears to be happening.
0: All right. Well, it's uh, an interesting one, and one I'm sure that is going to get a lot more discussion as well. Michael, thank you. As always, great to have you on the show.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: well, it looks like 2023 is going to be another record-breaking year for the sightings of biggs killer whales in waters around Vancouver Island and we still have a couple of months left in the year almost almost two full months well what is leading to the sightings why are we seeing so many of these whales in these waters joining me to talk more about this is Aaron glass executive director of the Pacific Whale watch Association Aaron thank you so so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. I think, well, we know people love seeing these whales and and uh, seeing them swimming and in their natural environment. But it does seem like there have been a lot of sightings this year.
2: Yes, uh, all throughout the year, you've probably seen at least a few viral videos of whales swimming close to the Victoria waterfront, close to the Vancouver waterfront. It just seems like sightings are up all over the Salish Sea.
0: Do we know why is it that there are are actually more whales or are there just more people out there looking for them?
2: Yeah, so this is kind of a double whammy. So bigs killer whales, when we talk about bigs killer whales, these are the mammal-eating orcas. They seal, sea lions, things like that, formerly known as transient orcas. Uh, But we are seeing more of them because their population has increased. So there's more whales in the population, and they're also spending more time in the area because they have lots
0: of food. So it's both. There's more whales, and they're spending more time here. Right. And these are the ones I always think of them as, I remember them by, these are the ones that are not the picky eaters.
2: <laughs> Correct. These are going to be uh, eating just about any marine mammal that they can get uh, their teeth into, but around here locally, they really love those seals and sea lions.
0: And when I was looking at, at uh, some of the information on this, so that, uh, that this year are reports that have come in, uh, both off the coast of BC and off the coast of Washington state, that the photographs and the, the confirmation of 1,270 unique sightings of bigs killer whales, what makes something uh, classified a unique sighting?
2: Yeah, so that's the really big important part. Uh, so far this year in 2023, there's been 1,270 unique sightings of bigs. And a unique sighting is one particular family all throughout the day. So you mentioned that we have a lot more people now looking for whales. You know, they're out on boats with our whale watchers, they're watching from shore. The same whales could be reported by maybe 50 people that day. But all of those sightings combined would only be one unique sighting. So that makes this number of almost 1300 unique sightings. All the more mind blowing is that there's no duplicate.
0: That's amazing, because I, I think that's the assumption is, like you said, there's so many boats out there and so many people out seeing these whales that you would assume there would be overlap.
2: Uh, There is. And, And Orca Behavior Institute, who's the research group who compiles all these sightings, they receive, you know, thousands and thousands of sightings each year. And then they go through sorting through the photos, confirming identifications, and they weed out the duplicates.
0: Mm, Okay. Uh, Because uh, that must be a big job too, because people get so excited when they see these whales. And like you said, uh, we we see video and we see things going viral. They just must be inundated with people sharing that, thinking that maybe they're the only ones who have seen them.
2: Yes, they absolutely are inundated. But social media has been great when it comes to whale research, because in the past, you know, it was just word of mouth. You know, you telling your buddy, hey, I saw some orcas down at the waterfront the other day. But now in a lot of cases, there's photos being shared, there's video, and so we can confirm not only that whales were seen, but we can actually, in a lot of cases, tell you exactly which family of whales were seen. So, social
0: media can be a blessing and a
2: curse, but when it comes to whale research, it's been a bit of a blessing.
0: Right, and and I'm glad you brought that up, because I, I was curious about the different families, and I think you and I talked about this before, in that the names that some of the whales have, whether it's notch because there's a piece missing out of a tail, or there's a story where you've seen the whale before, and, and that's how you know by those markings. So, is that still what groups are using, or how we're able to know which families and which whales these are? Yep, you've got it exactly right. So you can go off of the dorsal fin. Sometimes they'll you have unique
2: scars on their backs, uh, group size, other family dynamics. Those are all things that we would use to identify a particular family.
0: So having a whale sighting year like this, a record-breaking, does that give us any idea in that, can we expect that's what things are going to be like moving forward, or are there all those different factors that could change year to year?
2: Yeah, so this is certainly indicative of a trend. Uh, Here in BC, this record that we're talking about of most unique sightings in a single year has actually been broken nine out of the last ten years, the only exception being 2020, which for obvious reasons we had a lot less folks out Uh, to confirm these sightings so it seems like every year there's more and more whales there's more and more sightings of those whales and they're spending a much uh, longer time period in the area so as a whale watcher we certainly hope that this is indicative of the years to come.
0: And are there certain times of year I know they're they're transient and that used to be their names for, for that reason but are there certain times of year that are better or are they sticking around these waters more or is that changing at all?
2: Yeah, really great question, and I'm glad that you actually did refer to them as kind of that former nickname, the transient. But what we used to call them, because our understanding at the time was that these whales were just coming and maybe staying a few days and then leaving the area But now that we're studying them more, we are seeing that they are actually staying here much longer. And, in fact, I've already knocked on wood, but we are on day number 242 in a row of big killer whale sightings in the Sailor Sea. They've been seen every single day since March 12th, if you can believe it. Mm -hmm. So, unlike humpback whales and gray whales that migrate south for the winter – Orcas can be seen at any time of year. Of course, the weather, it's a pretty blustery day today. The weather can sometimes impact whether or not we are able to get out on a boat
0: and actually see them. But trust me, they're probably somewhere in the area. Hmm, interesting. That, I, I didn't realize it was that, that many days in a row. Erin, uh, do we know then, does it have an impact or is it having any kind of impact on the southern resident whales?
2: Yeah, that's another great question. So just as we're celebrating this record-breaking big season, it's been almost a record-breaking season for southern residents, but in the opposite direction. So this is the second fewest sightings of southern resident killer whales that there's been in a year. So we're not seeing southern resident killer whales very much either. And that, again, boils down to their food. Bigs have lots of seals and sea lions. We don't have quite as much salmon for those southern residents, and that's the reason that they're really not sticking around. We don't think it's because the bigs are here. Uh, They usually try to avoid each other, but on the few times that bigs killer whales and the salmon-eating residents have been in the same place, it's actually surprisingly the salmon-eating southern residents that chase the bigs killer whales away. So we don't think that that's the reason the southern residents aren't coming around. We're pretty sure it just boils down to not having uh, a reliable year-round salmon for them.
0: All right. Well, uh, I know, again, like you said, there are a lot of people out there and really enjoying seeing the whales and uh, seeing these uh, taking part in the record-breaking year. Erin, we will leave it there for today. But as always, thank you so much for joining us talking more about this today.
2: Yeah, thanks again for having me. Have a good one.
0: You too. Well some good news, that is the news of a tentative agreement in the Hollywood Actors strike and it is being met with celebrations in many, many places including here in BC.
2: More than 60,000 members went on strike in mid-July joining screenwriters on the picket lines together for the first time since 1960. The three-year contract still needs approval from the Actors Union board and its members. The union says the strike will be over on Thursday. Terms of the deal haven't been released, but central issues during bargaining included short-term compensation, royalties, and the use of artificial intelligence.
0: All right, so what does that mean for the industry and getting things back on track? Well, Amy Lang is joining us once again, president of North Shore and Mammoth Studios. Amy, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's well, It's
3: certainly it, <laughs> much more pleasant today than it was in the last few interviews. <laughs>
0: I, I was just going to say it's so nice to be talking about the, something uh, that is a positive uh, thing uh, and uh, what I think so many people were waiting for and hoping for. Uh, what was your response when you first heard that there was this tentative deal?
3: Well, it was definitely for, uh, for myself and everybody in the industry a definite uh, sigh of incredible relief and emotion and we are just so thrilled that this is that we're here now and been a long week waiting for them to come out of their review because it was you know we just we really everybody wants to get back to business
0: i know we don't know the details and until it's ratified those details likely aren't going to be released but as we heard in that clip some of the issues artificial intelligence and that kind of thing what has it been like for you as as somebody in the business waiting for this and what has it been like the last few months
3: Oh, well, certainly stressful. Um, you know, stressful for everybody. There was, you know, 80,000 people potentially out of work and well out of work. And so we were just really hoping that we knew that they were big issues and complex issues. Um, but what was, you know, I suppose positive is it did keep, you know, moving along over the course of this. They had to deal with the writer strikes, of course. And so there was just lots of complex issues that really led to this. And um, you know, frustrating because we want everybody to get back to business. And it meant a lot of dollars and cents for the economy and for um, people's financial well-being. And so it was very stressful.
0: And in your studio then, were, were people off work or did, did you have to lay people off or, or change that because of the strike?
3: Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, the productions, depending on where they were in their production cycles, absolutely had to lay people off. Uh, you know, they could not they can't go to camera without the actors. And if they don't have scripts, they can't, you know, continue to prep. And so um, there is absolutely uh, layoffs across the board and empty stages that really felt it um, deep in the, in the economy for BC.
0: And what will it look like? Or is it uh, maybe it's uh, too early, but do you know what it might look like as far as bringing people back to work? Well,
3: you know, again, like it depends on where they were in their production cycles. I have a TV series here on the lot that will be ready to go to camera when they're back in their offices and and that should, you know, anticipating that to be next week. So some will get back very quickly and others will take a little bit more time, you know, to get the train out of the station. Um, Our industry association is actually headed down to L.A. next week to meet with all the studios and the streamers. Uh, We're doing that with Creative VC to really get a first-hand look at how quickly can we get L.A. back to B.C.
0: Right, because I think that's one of the big questions too, isn't it? That, okay, now that there's this tentative deal and or this deal that that's, has been reached, how long, what does it look like for, to go from that to actually having productions that were stalled because of this back up and running and then back but being pumped out there for consumers?
3: start prepping as soon as they can. And we certainly know that there were shows prepping, um, you know, leading up to this. And so some are ready to hit, you know, hit green light it and get going. And they could be back in stages within a month and then shooting within two potentially. And so there'll, there'll certainly be a ramp up period. But um, I think what we saw from the shutdown in COVID is that this industry is very, very resilient and will
0: be doing a fine job of getting back as fast as they possibly can. And again, without knowing uh, the fine points or the details of this, do you think there will be changes or or will you see changes in this? Or are you anticipating uh, changes that will come from, from this deal? It's hard for me to comment on that, but I think, you know, you'd have to
3: speak to a producer who's penciling out the budget on their production as to what this means for them from a cost perspective. Um, so, so, for my studio is not necessarily a a direct impact, but certainly, you know, impact on the cost of production will always trickle down to, well, there's, you know, only so much to go around on a production budget. And does that mean less stages and shorter periods, amounts of time and um, smaller footprint and support spaces. So it, certainly will have an impact, whether it's direct to me, it's, it's really hard to tell.
0: Do you think it will change how people view things in that, uh, given the length of the strike and, and the, um, the writer's strike as well, uh, people may have seen things or, or gone to, to services maybe they didn't have in the past or branched out as far as the type of things that they watch or consume? Do you think that could have a, a lasting effect?
3: Uh, you know, branching out in terms of what you're consuming, I, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the content, the need for content and entertainment is certainly a large one, no matter what. And, you know, in terms of a lasting impact on potential crews and cast who worked in the industry and went out and found other jobs, you know, they're, we're kind of unsure as to what potential loss there in crew size for BC actually will be. And, and that will only time will tell as things, you know, ramp back up, um, but, you know, hopefully the loss is minimum and we we can get back to our production levels uh, before this.
0: Was BC particularly hit or hit, do you think, more than other areas because we are so uh, involved in this, because there are so many productions and companies like yours based here?
3: Well' we're, certainly a large part of our business is the foreign service production and and um, but I wouldn't say that's unique to BC that would be you know the same case for Ontario or Quebec and um, and certainly other jurisdictions in the US like Georgia and, and New York. so I wouldn't necessarily say BC was impacted more than any other but um, and it and it was felt throughout the world as well so um, you know it's it's unfortunate that this was such a global impact but it is you know, we're back to work now.
0: Right. Uh, have you been hearing from people or, or I guess people in the industry contacting you asking a lot of the same questions as to kind of what happens now? You know, I think it's we're going to really find out when we head down to L.A. next week and say what happened. And, and we speak
3: with them and say, OK, how can we get you back to B.C.? Where are you looking? You know, where are your productions wanting to go? And is, is this a, a great place for you to bring your your production to our world class facility?
0: Well, it uh, certainly is good news. And uh, as I mentioned, a lot of people celebrating and very happy to hear this today. Amy, so great to chat with you again, to talk to you uh, about something positive and a positive (laughs) development in this. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.